Hello there and welcome. It's episode 12 of the Stick to Syracuse podcast. My name is Brent Dax. Thank you so much for being here today. Dana Balter is running for Congress again. She came close to beating John Katko in 2018 and tells me coming up what she plans to do to win in 2020. Syracuse Georgetown, one of the great links of the past, will continue. Is it the right move? And what's the next step for Dino Babers in Syracuse football? The completed NFL draft gives us a clue. Great music and great conversation with Kathleen Mason and Corey Page on the sound scene. Hey, how'd you get here today on the Stick to Syracuse podcast? Did you find us on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, or SoundCloud? All great ways to get us because you can subscribe to the Stick to Syracuse podcast on all those platforms. You can also find us on Syracuse.com and on social media. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, however you got here today, we do thank you for that. Hey, Jess Joe, what do you say you get this party started? Behind SU Sports, snowstorm weather we post, Stick to Syracuse today. Soft potatoes, high top dogs, dynasty barbecue all year long. Stick to Syracuse today. It's raining, it's snowing, it don't know where it's going. Stick to Syracuse today. Ladies and gentlemen, your host of Stick to Syracuse, Brett X. I'm Dana Balter. I chose to make Central New York my home 15 years ago because I love it here. It's why I'm running for Congress. Dana Balter, a political newcomer with little name recognition, came within about five percentage points of beating John Katko for Congress last year. In that race, Balter won Onondaga County and got more Democratic votes than Katko got Republican ones. But she lost the election by about 13,000 votes based on Katko's strength on the conservative line. And now, she wants a rematch to represent Syracuse in New York's 24th Congressional District, which covers all of Onondaga, Cayuga, and Wayne counties, and the western half of Oswego County. I talked to Dana in her downtown Syracuse office for episode 12 of the Stick to Syracuse podcast. Here's that conversation. So Dana, what have you been up to since we heard last on election night? Well, um, Mostly, I've been working on getting a nonprofit off the ground uh, called Enter the Public Square, and it's an organization focused on building civic engagement. It's nonpartisan. It's not about elections or candidates. It's really focused on making sure that people have the skills and resources they need to engage in their communities around whatever things matter to them and in whatever way they'd like to. So, uh, for example, we do workshops that are open to the community that work on things like media literacy and group decision making. Uh, We're working on an educational program for youth right now to address some of those same skills and um, opportunities to get to know members of your local government to understand what they do for you and how you can better engage with them. Um, And that's taken most of my time uh, since the election. It's a a great project um, that I'm excited to see building. How have you found the reaction to that? Because I think what we've seen in the past few years, especially that younger demographic, is getting involved. And they're not only getting involved in terms of like, hey, I'm reading stuff on Twitter. It's like, no, what can I do to help my community? No matter what side of the aisle you're on, like you said, it's not 
anything in terms of politics, just getting involved with your community. So how have right. you found that response? I think, you know, everywhere we talk about it, people are excited about the idea for exactly that reason. Um, it became clear to me we needed something like this while I was campaigning around the district because I talked to so many people, again, regardless of their political affiliation, who for one reason or another were dissatisfied with what was happening in their community or in the country. And they'd say, I want to do something about it, but I don't know what to do, or I don't know who to call or where to go. So I thought we should uh, create something that answers those questions and makes it easier for people to get engaged. Um, And I think we're seeing increased engagement among all age groups, um, you know, kids, we see every once in a while, we see a new, uh, you know, star on social media, some seven-year-old or 10-year-old who's making impassioned speeches about things that matter to them. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who are grandparents and great-grandparents who are getting involved for the first time ever in their lives because this feels to most people, I think, like a really important moment in time when they have not only the opportunity, but the responsibility to do something. Um, And I think that's really exciting. Uh, That's, you know, that kind of engagement and personal involvement is what makes a democracy work. So I'm thrilled to see it and I want to do whatever I can to support it. So here we are heading, it seems like campaigning these days never stops. I mean, there's an election every two years and you're always, as you know, well know, you're out there talking to people and shaking hands and doing what you're doing and raising money and everything that comes with it. And we're heading towards 2020. What do you think is going to turn into the theme of that election overall? I mean, President Trump certainly, you know, just has this overwhelming presence and it's always going to be about him in a way, certainly. But what else about 2020 are you you looking at saying it's going to be about this? I really think um, 2020 is going to be an extension of a lot of the conversation we've been having. And when we do politics right, it's the conversation we always have, which is about how do we make our communities work for everybody? Um, What we see in our policies right now is a lot of stuff that works for a small segment of our society, usually those people who are already powerful. And because they have power, um, often in the form of money, they get to influence policy to benefit them. And so they become more powerful. And what that does is it leaves the rest of us, ordinary, everyday Americans, behind. And we're left kind of on our own to figure out how to make things work, struggling to make ends meet. And it's true no matter what policy area you're talking about, right? We can talk about jobs, and you see a few people who have access to really great jobs and the preparation for those jobs, while most people are struggling for to make enough money to keep a roof over their heads, keep food on the table, put a little money away for education. And lots and lots of people in this country who are still unemployed or underemployed, who don't even make a living wage. Um, same thing is true with healthcare. It really is any policy area you wanna talk about. So I think the big conversation in 2020 Um, should be about how to make a country, an economy, and a system, a political system that works for everyday Americans. 2020 is is a race that you officially announced you're you're getting back into, and and certainly CACO is, you know, you're looking forward to a rematch, but you've got a democratic field to go through first. So how do you look at it in terms of, you know, who you could be going up against and getting that nomination once again 
uh, to run against John Katko? Well, I'm really focused on John Katko and uh, nobody else. I think um, the reason that I got into this race is because I think we need a representative in Washington who is going to work towards that system that works for everybody, right? Somebody who's going to stand up for um, the hardworking families of central and western New York and work to enact policy that's going to make their lives better and a little bit easier. I don't think John Katko is that person. And um, so I'm really focused on that ultimate goal. Um, the process along the way is interesting and it can be a lot of fun. And one of the things that I like about primaries, one of the things I like about watching the primary at the Fed, at the national level right now, is that a primary gives you the opportunity to have really good conversation about the issues. Um, you generally get more time in a primary to delve into the challenges that our communities are facing and talk about how we're going to fix them and see who has the best ideas to do that. In a general election, unfortunately, we don't give a lot of time to that, right? So that's the part of the process that I really am looking forward to because I think, um, first of all, we end up making better policy choices when we have those conversations. But also, I think it's a really important thing that we owe to voters is the opportunity to hear from the people who are asking for their votes. What do you really stand for? What do you believe in? How do you think about these challenges? What can you do to make our lives and our communities better? And that's what I intend to spend the next year and a half talking to people about. What are the lessons from your first run in 2018 that you apply starting now, going into 2020? Yeah, I think um, it reinforced for me, the process of, of campaigning reinforced for me a lot of things that um, I thought and sort of hoped were true about being a candidate. Um, for me, it's really about getting out there and talking to people to show up in as many places as I can be. I wish there were seven of me so that I could be everywhere at once, but to get into every living room, every community center, every house of worship that you possibly can, anywhere somebody wants to have a conversation, I want to be there. And it's important, I think, in both directions. It's important as a candidate to make yourself available and to tell people what you stand for and what you want to fight for. But to me as a candidate, it is equally as important, if not more important, to listen to what people have to say. And I am so grateful for every conversation I had on the campaign trail where people, including lots of people who had no intention of supporting me, who were never going to vote for me, but who were willing to talk to me about what they wanted from their government and what the challenges were that they were facing and what they needed. Every day on the campaign is an opportunity to see the world from somebody else's point of view. And that is so incredibly valuable. It I think made me a better candidate. I know it will make me a better representative and it makes me a better person. And I am um, incredibly grateful for that opportunity. One thing I found interesting is, you know, you, you see a lot of, of polls, you see a lot of articles, you see a lot of things when we're kind of buried in our laptops and our, in our phones about divisiveness. It's like, we have never been more divided politically. You're either on this side or you're on that. But to hear you say, you know, when you actually look somebody in the eye and talk to them, like that changes. So... It's interesting to hear you say, like, I've got to get out there more. I wish I could clone myself because it seems like when we get away from, I mean, look, it's a necessary evil. It's a technology. Mm -hmm. we're, we're on a podcast right now. People mm -hmm. are probably listening to it on their phone. But 
it seems like it's it's almost old school in a way. It's like, no, I want to shake your hand and talk to you. And if we still disagree, fine. But it feels like that's half the battle, just Absolutely. getting out there and, looking, and doing that. Absolutely. And the technology is incredibly important, right? Because it lets you connect with so many more people than you could otherwise, right? Because of time, because of geography, all of that. And that's very valuable. Here's how I look at it. If I am asking for your vote, I am asking for the most personal thing you have to give me. Right? That is your right as an American citizen. It is your piece of our democracy. And I'm asking you to trust me, to place your trust in me that I am going to work on your behalf and in your best interests. I take that very seriously. And I think the least you can do if you are asking for somebody's vote is look them in the eye and talk to them. That's why I think things like town hall meetings are so important right? An email communication with your congressman's office does not take the place of being able to look him in the eye and tell him what you need or tell him what you're concerned about and see his face and read his body language and hear his answer. That is, um, government representation is so personal. You are making decisions that affect the most personal aspects of somebody's life. And I think you owe them the opportunity for that personal connection. So to me, it's extraordinarily important. And what I have found is that once you get away from the anonymity of the screens and you look somebody in the eye, first of all, we agree on way more than we think we do. Um, when you talk to people about healthcare, we might have really different ideas about what the best policy solution is, but every single person that I have met and heard from across the 24th district has asked about how can we make healthcare more affordable and more accessible. Everybody has a story about facing bankruptcy or not being able to see a doctor or not being able to afford their medications. That is a universal experience we all share and we all have the same goal. We want affordable quality healthcare. When we talk to each other in person about the ideas, about the challenges we face and the solutions to those challenges, we see how much we have in common and we relate to each other as people. And we remember that we are really all the same, that we share this community, and that we all want what's best for everybody. And I think that that is the basis from which we have to start in our politics. Is there something in particular that you have seen? It could be a number of things. I'll just throw it out there broadly. Is there something in particular, though, that you have looked at right now from the sidelines but wanting to get in the game that you feel you could be doing better than John Catco if you were in Congress now? Um, it probably won't surprise you to know. I think there are a lot of things uh, that I could be doing better than John Catco. I will go back to healthcare again. Um, I have been very disappointed with the congressman's uh, lack of action on healthcare. We this is a, a crisis for our families. There's just no question about it. I, I talked to a teenage girl in in Fayetteville who uh, has diabetes. And she came up to me at an event uh, to have a private conversation afterwards. She wanted to make sure that I knew this story and she wanted me to share the story. She had lost this past year two friends who had diabetes because they couldn't afford their insulin. These are teenagers. I talked to a man in, in Williamson who um, told me that he had health insurance but he could never go see a doctor because his deductible was over $4,000. And so even though he was technically covered, he didn't have health care. 
right? These are uh, problems that we need to solve. And right now we have um, an administration and a Republican Party in Congress um, who are determined to do what's best for um, the pharmaceutical lobby and the insurance lobby instead of what's best for American families and, and the f- hardworking folks of Central and Western New York. Um, that's just one example. The, um, the tax bill is another one um, that I'm hearing a lot about right now because we just came through tax season. And I've heard from so many people who are saying, where's the tax cut I was promised? I just did my taxes and I owe another $2,000 this year. or I owe another $3,000 this year. And now I don't have money to put in my kid's education fund. Or uh, now I can't replace the dishwasher that's broken in my kitchen. And, um, you know, that was a very clear-cut example of putting the interests of a very select, powerful few corporations and very wealthy people ahead of the interests of everyday families. Um, We need tax policy that puts hardworking families at the center. So, you know, there's a couple examples. There's a lot more. When when you want to do a two-hour podcast, let me know. We can talk about them all. <laughs> I was going to say, we could do a whole podcast just on that. But there yeah. is another issue I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you about. It's what's on everybody's mind, of course, right mm-hmm. now. That's Route 81. Mm-hmm. And we've seen, finally, the environmental report. You know, we at Syracuse.com came out in favor of the community grid. Mm-hmm. We've just seen a lot of people line up and say, that's the solution. Is the community yeah. grid something that you're backing? Absolutely. I've been an advocate for the community grid for a long time. Um, it's important to note that the environmental report we saw was a draft, right? The, the final one will be coming and there will be an opportunity for um, members of our communities uh, across the region to give their input at public meetings and eventually in a comment period uh, before the final report is issued. But this report made a very clear statement and recommendation. They clearly identified the the grid as uh, the preferred alternative. I like that they're calling it a business loop. I think that is a really good description of what this actually can do for our community, right? One of the reasons why it's the best alternative is the potential for economic growth. And the idea of turning this right now mostly unused area into a thriving business district is very exciting Uh, for a city like Syracuse and a region like central New York that's been struggling for so long. This has the potential for a tremendous amount of economic growth. What I am eager to see in the public conversation now is rather than a fight over that recommendation, I wanna see the conversation turn to how can we put together plans that will ensure we can get the most out of a grid and we can address all of the concerns that um, communities, neighborhoods, businesses who might be negatively impacted in some way uh, have because we need to address that in our planning. And if we do it thoughtfully and well, this uh, can bring tremendous benefit. It has the potential to be the single most transformative piece of policy that this region will have in, I I don't know, 50, 60 years. So um, I really wanna see us be smart about it. I think it it just has great potential for all of us. Let me circle back to 2020 for a minute because it, it's like take a number at this point. <laughs> you want to be a Democrat and, and run for president. It's a very crowded field, and mm-hmm. I think people are just going to kind of watch the game here. But do you know who you would support at this point, or do you want to see it play out? I don't know. I don't have a favorite. Um, I'm really enjoying it. It is uh, 
very large field. I think it's going to get larger. I think there are people who still haven't announced yet who will. What I like about it, similar to what I said before, is what we're seeing, we always get some discussion of personalities and things like that, right? And that's there too. But really, this has mostly been focused on issues. Um, Candidates are talking about their platforms. And when they're making appearances on media and they're doing interviews and they're doing town halls, the press is asking questions about real issues. The things that, you know, our families across central and western New York care about. They're asking them, what are your plans to boost the economy? What are your plans to address the healthcare crisis? What are your plans to to address the climate crisis? The things that people actually care about. And that's what a primary should be, a discussion of the ideas. So I'm eager to watch it unfold. I'm sure that as we go, I'll be ticking people off my list and eventually I'll end up with a candidate that I really love. I think we have a slate of great candidates running at this point. And um, I am I just am eager for the for the conversation to stay focused on the things that matter to people rather than getting distracted by a lot of the stuff that comes out of Washington, D.C., um, which is not what people want to talk about. Dana, a final question for you. This is something I like to ask every guest that we have on here, but I've got to rephrase it in a way. So the question is, what makes Syracuse Syracuse? Mm -hmm. But seeing that you want to serve the 24th district, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll phrase it that way. What makes the 24th district the 24th district? Yeah. There are so many things that I love about this region that I think I've traveled all over the country. I've traveled to many places around the world. I've never been to a place that's exactly like Central and Western New York. Some of the things that I love about it that I think make it special. One is the nature, the Finger Lakes, the parks. The, it is spectacularly beautiful here in a way that we are so lucky to have these treasures. I also, I, I've talked about this before, I love the history of this region. There are so many important movements that have started and are grounded in this region. Um, The abolition movement, uh, the women's suffrage movement, the environmental justice movement. Uh, We're the home of the Onondaga Nation, right, which um, was part of the inspiration for our constitution. I mean, it is a place that is so rich with history and particularly with movements for justice. And living here, I feel like we in the current day get to carry that tradition forward and represent um, a region of the country that has been important throughout our country's history in in leading the way, uh, the vanguard of human rights. And that is a pretty extraordinary thing. The other thing that I think makes this region special, I have never been in a place where people are as friendly and where the sense of community is as strong. It There is something about central New York that just grabs you and doesn't let go. And it's amazing. And I don't know where that comes from. I don't know, um, you know, if it's about shared hardship, if it's about shared history, I'm not sure, but it is amazing. It, to me, is what characterizes this as home. Hey, what do you say? Have a happy day, cause we're living in Syracuse. So what's the next step of success for Dino Babers in Syracuse football? 
They've certainly had plenty in the past couple of years, with a 10-win season a year ago, getting back into the top 25, recruiting going well, and Dino Baber's speeches going viral after all the big wins. But you want to know when Syracuse football may be truly back? It's getting NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell to say the word Syracuse. Why is that? Because Roger Goodell only does the first round of the NFL draft. There are 254 picks in it, and this year, Syracuse defensive tackle Chris Slayton went in the seventh round, with a number of players signing free agent deals, hoping to make the NFL that way, and inexplicably Eric Dungy sitting and waiting for an opportunity. There are 254 picks in the draft, but only 32 are said by the commissioner. The Arizona Cardinals select Kyler Murray, quarterback, Oklahoma. Only 32 are said in the first round, and that is when Syracuse football will be back. Speaking of back, Syracuse and Georgetown will play for another four years. And if you're somebody who thinks that series leans a little too heavily on nostalgia, I'm here to tell you that the true sign of a rivalry is the back-and-forth nature of it. Sure, there's history, there's big names, and Syracuse-Georgetown still has that, with with Jim Beheim still on the sideline for Syracuse, and Patrick Ewan now coaching the Hoyas. There's history, there's nostalgia, there's all that, but what Syracuse and Georgetown still has is a competitive back-and-forth series. This past season, Tyus Battle had to hit a game-winning shot at the buzzer just to lift the orange over the Hoyas at the Carrier Dome. Even with Syracuse adding two more games to the ACC slate and having to be more selective about non-conference games with the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee putting an emphasis on the quad system and the RPI rankings and a whole bunch of analytics I still don't understand, there's still room for Syracuse and Georgetown to play every year. And I'm glad to see it's going to go forward for four more. Or otherwise, it smells like fire and the pilot looks so tired when he was drinking with me in Terminal B. So if that was the last word I get, then I want it back. I round up my enemies and I'll tear out all the springs and strings and batteries of whatever the Corey Page is a Sammy Award-winning singer-songwriter in Syracuse, New York. His influences include Elliot Smith, Soul Coughing, Radiohead, and Elvis Costello. After five studio albums and more than a decade as frontman for rock band Candid, he now performs mainly as an acoustic solo artist who's working on his first solo album. Corey joins Kathleen Mason from K-Mace Productions on the sound scene, recorded at Cafe Kubal Studios, in downtown Syracuse. So when did you kind of morph over into singer-songwriter? <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, uh, it just it became... It, in 08, I moved to Texas for a job, and that kind of obviously like put a halt to the band playing because all the rest of the guys were up here. Um, and beyond that, it was just kind of life, you know, taking its course and, you know, not having as much time as you do when you're when you're a kid to play gigs and practice and write yeah. and everything. So, yeah. So we got to the point where we were playing, we would play here and there and we just kind of realized, you know, we didn't, we just don't have the time and energy mm-hmm. to put into it. Uh, you know, a couple of the other guys have kids and, you know, 
you get older and you kind of realize how quick your, your time gets eaten up. So, um, we do, well, we do still play once in a while. We, mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, everybody's doing their own thing. Um, so it was kind of just out of necessity. I'm like, if I still want to play music right, and I don't want to go, yourself. you know, don't want to go to the trouble of putting a new band together and all that. But you were the writer. Right. For, so yeah. You were the songwriter for Candid. So it was sort of like a natural progression anyway. Yeah. It didn't, nothing really changed in that respect other than the fact that as I'm writing, I'm going like just imagining the other instruments instead of, <laughs> <laughs> instead of actually being able absent. to bring a part to one of the other guys and go, here, can you play something like this? Uh, so for as long as I've been writing stuff, um, I don't know. I tech, I, I tend to write with a full band in mind automatically. And it's probably just because of the way we had, you know, the way I started. So, which is why, you know, lately I've been trying recording myself and piecing together full band, you know, recordings, mm-hmm. um, as so. opposed to just the solo acoustic stuff. Good segue. New yeah. music coming yeah. from you. Yeah. Which I'm excited about. You're one of my favorite uh, writers. Well, thank you. In this town. Because you have such a uh, an interesting way to describe something. And it's not... It's very creative, but it's also very obtuse. It's... it's I can't explain it. Like, you, you have you to listen me? to you. Obtuse. <laughs> I called you obtuse. I know. It's true. <laughs> Isn't that what he says? Shawshank Redoubt? Yeah. <laughs> Is what it? did you call me? Shawshank. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, yeah. So, I I'm would encourage like anybody it. to listen. It's it's rare to find somebody that writes lyrics that you could that could actually stand alone, as honestly as poetry. And I don't mean oh, like roses that. are red, you know, right, that, that kind right. of stuff. It doesn't yeah, necessarily I mean, I, rhyme. When I first started writing, and the, the guys in my band would attest to this, it was kind of out of just people poking me. Like, they, I think they had... I, it never occurred to me that I could do it. Um, they seemed to have the sense that like I had some sort of, you know, creative, you know, seed there that, that they were like, you should try and write something, try and write something. So eventually I did, uh, you know, to, to, uh, varying degrees of success early wow. on. But, but uh, like, you know, I, I, I took to it immediately. Like I realized, man, there's, that's a great feeling to finish a song. And especially when you get other people, to put it together and finally mm-hmm. hear it and go, man, you know, that's ours. It's not, you know, a cover or whatever you want. You had your face on backwards when you opened up your mouth. Reverse the words and now you know the score. That all those coins you piled up at the bottom of your well could have bought what you were wishing for. Running out of air 
<laughs> that dumb New York law? Yes. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to read you five laws from different places. One of them will be New York. But New you York have to tell State? me. Yes. Okay. You'll have to tell me which one is New York's, okay? Five laws, and five one of them laws. is from New York. Five dumb laws. Okay. 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 It has to be dumb. Fair enough. Okay. Um, all right, are you ready? I'm, re- I'm first so ready. Law, first law, I know. First law is it is illegal to get a fish drunk. That's okay. the first law, okay? That's boring. Second, it is illegal to walk down the street with an ice cream cone in your pocket, wait for it, on a Sunday. Okay. So, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, fine. Cool. Sunday, no. Right. All right. Fair enough. All right. Here we go. Fish drunk, ice cream Mm -hmm. in the pocket. All right. Third one, slippers are not to be worn after 10 p.m. No slippers. Uh, Okay. 10 p.m. That's a law? It is a law on the books. Okay. Okay. Fourth, it is illegal to wear a bulletproof vest while committing a murder. So you want to commit a murder, folks. Okay. Take that vest off. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, it is unlawful to educate dogs. Period. Unlawful. Period. No education. <laughs> okay. No fetch. No, none of that. These are all in the book somewhere. And one all of them in the is book New York somewhere. State. One of them is New York State. Which one is it? Man, I'm tempted to say the uh, the bulletproof vest. Uh, that's That sounds like <laughs> New York State to me. Like... I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that one. I'm going to say that you can murder somebody but just, as long as you're not wearing a bulletproof vest in okay. New York State. Unfortunately, that's New Jersey. Oh, okay. The Garden Close State. Enough. The yeah. Garden State. Why wouldn't it be, right? <laughs> right. Why wouldn't it be? Oh, um, which one of these laws am I breaking routinely here? Okay. Don't wear your slippers. Oh, I don't have slippers. <laughs> All right. Then you're not breaking any this laws in New York. And now, sounds from our next episode. If I try to conquer this mountain, will you shoot me down? I'm your favorite target, dodging bullets from your tongue. If I build myself a prison, will you block the light? Blame me for the darkness in the night. Singer-songwriter with a sound that is a creative blend of soul, rock, pop, and hip-hop influences. The singer-songwriter, self-taught guitarist, and pianist was born in central New York and started playing instruments at the age of 15. He recently studied under the legendary Carlos Alomar, David Bowie's guitarist, musical arranger, and collaborator for decades. That's next time on the Stick to Syracuse podcast. We thank you for listening to episode 12. Don't forget you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. My name is Brent Tax. Until next time, I'll see you at Phase Drugs. Just a 